Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, editor-at-large for LARB, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined in the studio today by managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. How's it going? It's okay. How about you? Yeah, it's fine. Hmm. So <laughs> this week, we're going to listen to a conversation I had with cool New York... It girl. It girl, yeah. but also kind of reticent, theoretical. Smart it girl. Smart, ambivalent. Um, aloof. Very aloof, but friendly and, and, and nice. charming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Natasha Stagg. And we're talking about her new collection of essays and short stories that may be also real called Sleeveless, Fashion, Image, Media, New York, 2011 through 2019, which is... This year. This year. I'm really sad that I couldn't be there because I wanted some it girl gossip. Um, <laughs> we didn't have a ton of gossip in this interview, alas. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you yeah. in New York from 2011, 2019? No, you weren't. You were here. Yeah. I haven't been in New York for a long time. Yeah, me so. neither. But so I we could... won't know what she's talking no. about. <laughs> I, think, I think we'll know. I think we'll know. I mean, I could imagine. I've gone to some, you know, publicity events in my day and seen how bizarre they are. Oh, um, and that's actually one of my favorite parts of this book is Natasha's careful attention to just these unbelievably, you know, indulgent and ridiculous, but also almost surreal publicity events that I imagine she spends some time going to. And she does. She writes about it. Oh, that sounds fun. But it doesn't actually. It's not actually fun doesn't sound like it in this book oh it sounds like a horror show a little bit oh. like a make turn you into a nihilist okay well i'm ready to be turned to a nihilist i think <laughs> <laughs> it's overdue <laughs> I, mean, I thought you were already maybe yeah i was tipping on the edge but you know what one natasha stag story and i'm there <laughs> do you know i used to i was sort of in fashion in new york but uh, really before 2011 what yes. did you do let's see well i for a little while, I was working at W Magazine and Women's Wear Daily, but that was in Paris. Ooh. I know. And then I did a little stint at Teen Vogue. And then I was a photographer at Fashion Week. So I would go to Fashion Week every year to photograph the shows. A photographer? Yeah. So you sat in the front. So I away. sat usually in the photographer's pit, oh, okay. which Sorry, is a I'd, terrible... I've only been to one fashion show. Yeah, no, I would sit... Well, you know, one of the things that I learned from going to those shows is if you just sit down in the front row and you act as if you belong there, no one will question you. You just sit there and, you know, even if it's like... But, but don't people technically have Technically, Anna Wintour's seat. Okay. No, no one will say anything. Wow. But yes, no, as a photographer, you attend, but you're in the photographer pit. So you're okay. kind of positioned right... So that the models are heading at you so you can get a good mm. shot. It's a hellhole, that photographer pit. But it was fun while it lasted. Were you shooting with your iPhone or? No. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you had a real camera. I had a real camera. I did. I did not even have an iPhone then. I think they weren't in existence. They must have been. Or I don't know when iPhones were. I barely am aware of iPhones now. But I mean, I have one. But no, I'm, I think no one really had iPhones then. Wow. Yeah, it was a real camera. It's a whole other world. It's a whole other world. Much freer than. Well, I'm more interested in the contemporary world. Let's listen to this interview. Let's do it. We have. 
have Natasha Stagg in the studio with us today. Natasha is the author of Surveys, a novel published by Semiotext in 2016. And her work has appeared in publications such as Art Forum, Book Forum, Texer and Kunst, N Plus One, Spike Art, Flash Art, Days, V, Vice, and other publications. And she's here to talk about her new collection, which is Sleeveless, Fashion, Image, Media, New York, 2011 through 2019. Thanks for being here, Natasha. Thanks for having me. So the pieces in this collection cover, you know, 2011 through 2019 up to the present. And that's the entire time you've lived in New York. Yeah. So I just wonder if you could tell us about how you came to the city and where you came from and what your life was like when you first got there. Yeah. So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I moved as like a young teenager to Michigan and went to college there and then ended up moving back to Tucson for grad school. Or I moved back and then went to grad school there. And then I moved to New York in 2011 after maybe like a year of deliberating. Is that just where you always imagined you'd end up? No, actually, I think I was really kind of anti moving to New York just because it was so expected for somebody like me as in you know somebody who was going to school for creative writing and who had these like artistic leanings or also my parents are both from New York and like uh, I see. they were kind of artistic and I don't know it just seemed so cliche even though nobody else in my family is in New York but then my sister moved there my twin sister and so then I kind of learned from her that it was super fun and I just visited a lot and ended up there. And so when you first came to the city, like, what did you imagine your life would be like? And what was your life like? Where did you live? How did you earn a living? I moved with, like, no expectations. I think I had been, like, traveling a little bit before that and kind of had this idea. I actually thought I'd probably move to L.A. And... Then I thought maybe I'd move to Berlin or, you know, I just had all these other ideas of where I'd end up. So when I got to New York, it felt like another temporary thing. Like everything else I'd done so far in my adult life was like, well, this is just temporary. And I worked at this vintage store that was like massive and Mm -hmm. had like 50 employees or something. And it was super fun, met amazing people. And I'm still friends with a lot of those people. And then Within a year, I think I was working at a magazine and writing for other magazines and going to Fashion Week and doing like parties and just like really getting absorbed by New York Mm -hmm. in every way. And I was just like, okay, I actually might live here forever. Uh It's funny because it sounds very charmed and wonderful, Mm -hmm. like this wonderful entree, but the tone of a lot of these pieces is one of like, deep ambivalence and <laughs> disenchantment and kind of anxiety. And you don't get a picture of the city as being this, you know, amazing, vivacious place to be. Mm-hmm. It seems like this faded hulk of a place that also is mediated through an online world. Yeah. I mean, it is, New York is really tough and it's, I think very angst-ridden right now, but I think the whole world is changing in a lot of ways towards that. So it's, 
I don't live anywhere else, so I don't know if it's like yeah. similar. Well, else. I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, there's this really funny part of this one essay where you're like at a opening for something and everyone's talking about, oh, like, of course, New York used to be so much better. And then mm-hmm. one person is like, oh, New York is the greatest it's ever been right now. You know, and everyone is like, what? Like, yeah. what? That's really not the attitude you're supposed to have. You know, you're supposed to pine for this old version of New York. So it's it's like the city, just a wash in nostalgia. No one being there thinking that this is the best time to be there. It's like the time has already passed. And so I guess I wanted to ask you, like, what you think could be behind that. Besides just that, this seems kind of the mythos of New York. Like, everyone's always talking about the way it was, even mm-hmm. in the 70s, people were talking about the 20s, that right. cyclical nature of it. But it seems like, right, does it speak to a larger moment across the board or just in the city in general? I think both. I think New York specifically is like kind of known for that, living in nostalgia constantly. And it's kind of inspired me and a lot of people I know to reject that. Just the knowledge that maybe... Everybody in the 90s thought it would have been great to be there in the 70s, just not even thinking about all of the crime and other obstacles that would have been there for them at that time. And then people my age kind of have this nostalgia for like a club kid era or these wild parts of the history of New York where everybody had some like crazy persona or they could get away with being really dangerous in ways that like a politically correct future wouldn't allow. And so there's a nostalgia for this era that at that time was nostalgic. And that to me seems like a lesson to be learned. Like maybe we shouldn't feel so nostalgic for like a time that if you went back and visited those people, they would say they didn't like the time they were living in either. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it led to the story of the New York club kids ends in a murder and all these tragedies and people overdosing on drugs and stuff so you know it always seems to fizzle out for a reason (laughs) (laughs) right and also it's interesting so you end up working in at a fashion magazine and then also working in other ways in fashion Mm -hmm. and fashion is about kind of reflecting on past decades recycling trends there's a, a constant kind of repackaging things that have happened before so there's some connection there I wonder if you could talk about what your entree into, besides the magazine, what your entree into this kind of world was and what kind of roles you've had in this industry. I still feel super peripheral to it, actually. No matter how many jobs I've had where I get sort of like sucked into a inner circle. Like sometimes I feel really like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here about a kind of elite place in the fashion world, because that's kind of what it's all about, is creating these spaces that are not accessible to other people. And (laughs) so to find yourself in them is both overwhelming and also usually disappointing because, you know, nothing can live up to your expectations there. But so I have worked directly for brands as a press writer, and I've worked as a fashion writer for different magazines and I've worked as an editor at a fashion magazine. So just end up at a lot of fashion events and then just living in New York, the longer you live there, if you're friends with people who are working in that industry and like my sister does and 
a lot of people I know are designers or work for designers or, you know, it's just an industry that's very prevalent there. I think you just end up at the wildest things that you never thought would happen, you know. Give us some examples. Like, I'm just always surprised that people invite me to, like, a party that's super (laughs) exclusive. And it's, like, a party that's about being exclusive or fashionable. And as shitty as that sounds, like, I hate the way that that makes me sound, I guess. The idea of striving for that, like, getting to go there. It's more like this, I think I feel over and over again, like, it's interesting to see what the fashion world turns to for its next trend, like looking for something new. And so like once some of my friends started getting involved in these processes, like I guess I just, I somehow got lumped in with them, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's a fun exercise to see like how New York kind of shifts around and tries to like absorb different, identities and cultures into whatever it deems fashionable. And, you know, one of my favorite pieces in this book is bellwether boots Mm -hmm. about the prevalence of these red boots in, what is it, fall 2017 or winter 2017? Probably winter. Okay, winter 2017, (laughs) like every label is like showing these boots Mm -hmm. and you diagram so well what the boots, where they came from, what they represent, what they could mean. In a way, I would never, I mean, I had already questioned how is it that in one season, like every label has pinpointed the same trend, you know, as someone who doesn't know the insides of the fashion industry would would have no idea how that could happen. But it seems like because you have this industry knowledge and also this kind of remove, you're able to write about it so well. So maybe you could talk about those boots. Where did they come from? Why were they there? Yeah, I guess that's sort of, Also, like, my access point maybe is, like, looking at fashion kind of from a remove and seeing trends like that or maybe even, like, being sort of facetious about trends like that. Because it's—that's just one example, but every single season, if you do look at runway shows as much as I do, like, you see— the same thing happening throughout. I mean, I'm not so inside of it that I know why that's happening or how. I'm just kind of coming up with my own interpretations of like what that means societally, I guess, or like what a million pairs of red boots could look like to the rest of the world if they do become this like huge trend. But every time I've looked through a fashion week and pictures it's like these strange things happen where like you wouldn't ever expect something as sort of like ridiculous as like a knee-high red boot because it's also like that's an example of something that people don't wear a lot it's not Mm -hmm. like a super casual item (laughs) and there's a lot of that happening where like every single fashion show has like some motif you know, like a giant butterfly or something. Like you just keep seeing it over and over and over again. And you're like, how did this happen? And I think the reality is that the fashion world is so small that they all talk to each other and maybe just have this sort of generalized interest in similar things. And they 
kind of morph into these pictures and concepts. But then I think in the world of fashion reportage, all those things get blown way out of proportion and end up being like, this is a moment to reflect on a certain, you know, time. And I think my version of that reportage is like almost tongue in cheek, like, okay, just because every fashion designer designed a pair of knee high red boots doesn't actually mean there's some sort of like cold war starting, but it could sort of end up feeling like that eventually for the rest of us who are kind of like watching this happen. Because you connect the boots, right, to like a Soviet style, just because they were red. I Well, yeah, like that's kind of a joke too. It's like uh-huh. they're not, they have nothing to do with a Soviet uniform, right? but they kind of, all come from this one style of dressing that is sort of a metaphor for like East meets West kind of thing. You know, it's like this like dowdy, drapey, old world Russian dress with these like really sexy kind of like 80s looking knee high red boots. And so I kind of equated that as like what it looked like at this moment when at the fall of the Soviet Union, like the American items could get shipped in without being stopped at the border. So there was like suddenly this 80s newness, but like maybe also a mix of like everything that had not come through before that. So it was just like a whole decade of media all at once but shoved up against this like really old world style of dressing and other media so that I felt like was the inspiration for the look and then it got reinterpreted by a million different designers unintentionally or not you Mm -hmm. know and then I think as like the rest of the world sees that from the corner of their eye or not necessarily focusing on fashion because I think most of the world doesn't focus on fashion shows. You know, it's like a very niche crowd that actually looks at that stuff. But it ends up trickling into the way we kind of see everything because it's it influences advertising. It influences like the way influencers (laughs) dress, you know, like everything that's kind of being filtered into our lives is affected by what is popular in the fashion world. And so I think my take is just sort of this like really like far-reaching connecting the dots thing where it's like, is this scary? Like, is it kind of interesting that on the surface, a lot of us are saying that we're really protective of America and afraid of our Russian ties But then maybe, I don't know, it's not like on the inside, but it's in this like other level, this like level of our tastes being changed by advertising. We have this strange solidarity with the Russian aesthetic. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Natasha Stagg, author of Sleeveless. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. 
have Ariana Reigns back in the studio with us. Ariana is the author most recently of A Sandbook and many other collections of poetry and plays and translations. Ariana, thanks for being here. What book are you going to recommend? I actually have two. Ooh, great. An old one and a new one. Okay. Thanks for having me back. So, old. I recommend The Changing Light at Sandover by James Merrill. Ooh. Um, this is a really freaky book. It's really interesting. James Merrill wrote it by using a Ouija board with his partner, his husband. Well, I don't think they were married. You couldn't get married at that time. But his partner, David Jackson, and he, with the use of a Ouija board, um, managed to contact a familiar who then sort of brought them into an experience that described the hierarchies of heaven and basically a conflict in the upper reaches of the heavens about whether or not human life should be allowed to continue on earth due to our having dropped the atom bomb. It's a really interesting book. They contact Auden, who is there in the beyond, pleading on the behalf of humanity that we be allowed to continue being people on planet earth. So I'm really into these books that, these poetry books that describe the structure of the beyond. There's lots of them. Dante, you know, the Upanishads. There's there's all kinds of them. And this happens to be one that is more recent. Right. Um, yeah. It's really fun to read, too. Is it a long... Because I know that using a Ouija board is actually pretty time-consuming. Is it a long text? Yeah, it's a long text, and it's written in blank verse. It's actually quite an achievement. Just on the simple technical level, it's really an amazing achievement. And yeah, it's like laborious to write out those words and sentences. And I think it took close to 20 years, if not more, for the whole thing to be written. And it did win the National Book Award, but I think a lot of people decided that James Merrill was just too weird Mm -hmm. and distanced themselves from him because of the freakiness of that book and the whole project, you know, through the period of time that he was working on it. Right. Okay, that sounds like a good one to revisit right now and as we might be on the brink of war. And how about the other one? The other one is a new book called uh, Skins of Columbus by Edgar Garcia that just came out from Fence. And it's an amazing kind of hybrid book that the poet basically read the journals of Christopher Columbus and then kind of did like dream, like dreamt through them. And sort of it engages with that really weird text and with the whole story of colonialism as a kind of dream and nightmare. But it's like, there's a lot of sort of, I think it's called like a dream ethnography. It's subtitle. It's really interesting. It also is kind of suffused with the spookiness and the uncanniness of anthropology itself, the idea of trying to penetrate some otherness, a different culture, but the ways that all kinds of dreams, delusions, and nightmares are part of that story. So it's it's a reckoning with the colonial nightmare in a really kind of glorious way. And mm. it's not merely condemning or just saying Christopher Columbus never should have gotten in his boat, <laughs> right. even if he shouldn't have. It's a very like ample way of coming at this whole traumatic story. And it's really fun to read also. Oh, that sounds amazing. I, I know in fiction, it's like dreams are kind of outlawed. People are <laughs> so, super against dreams, but they can be so fruitful. And I actually noticed in your book, there are a number of 
poems that seem to be, you know, transcriptions or either inspired by dreams. Poetry is great for anything people throw in the trash. <laughs> it's like the like excellent thrifting of literature. Mm-hmm. Nice. So we got some Ouija board poems and some dream poems, and, and both of those sound excellent. Can you tell us the titles again? The Changing Light at Sandover by James Merrill and Skins of Columbus by Edgar Garcia. Mm, those sound really good. Thank you so much, Ariana, for coming back. Thank you. We've been speaking with Ariana Raines, author most recently of A Sand Book. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Natasha Stagg, author of Sleeveless. Yeah, that so it's, it's a fascinating that I would, you know, just seeing the boots on the Vogue online, I would never have made that connection. And, and it's, you also delineate other pieces of clothing, like the thong. Mm-hmm. or athleisure, you know, these kind of things that do trickle down and become what people wear and put on our bodies. But it, I don't think they're examined or analyzed in the way like maybe an artwork would be or like the, there's not as much, even though I think a lot of people would look at runway clothes and think they couldn't afford them. There's not the same level of kind of criticality or analysis about them, it would seem, in fashion press, for instance. Everything right. is, everyone's much more connected and complicit it would seem, just from my outside perspective. I wonder if you think that's true. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really strange that there's a certain level of criticality. Um, there's there's a certain level of fashion writing that is hyper-intellectual that I think is just so unpopular that nobody reads it. I mean, <laughs> I like, no one I know reads this sort of, like, fashion theory that does get published, but, you know, who knows where. And the fashion writing that is kind of what we're more aware of is like a review of a fashion show, which seems like the least important thing to talk about when it comes to fashion. Like a fashion show is just an event to promote a clothing collection and clothing collections that are luxury and heritage brands, like nothing to do with our real lives. But eventually those trends do have something to do with our real lives. It's just that the way they're interpreted, I think, like the most most of the fashion writers that I know are not I think they're not assigned that type of writing. Mm-hmm. I think it's not smart at, for a magazine to really interrogate of that course, type yeah. of writing because, you know, they're indebted to their advertisers. But I think it's interesting at this moment to interrogate luxury fashion and the way it relates to our everyday lives because fast fashion has become like super fast in my lifetime. Like I've noticed the ads on my feed becoming the like the knockoff of the brands that I am studying. So I know that they come out like the next day, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and I think those knockoffs are popular. Right. (laughs) <laughs> right. You know, you also seems to have a really good eye for this, which I guess is not that you know, specialized anymore, but these kind of people, influencers, let's mm-hmm. say, um, and, and the way that someone would kind of make a living or make a career um, that is like 
the kind of famous for being famous or what we mm-hmm. used to understand differently, but now it has actually become maybe more insidious and tied to advertising and maybe more invasive into our lives than we would imagine. Just some beautiful woman in a magazine like 20 years ago is now like, you know, up close with us all the time selling us things secretly. Or um, and, and there have some good pieces in here about kind of influencers. So I, I wonder if you could talk about about that, about, and like the difference, maybe like, you know, you talk about the it girl of the, of the 90s versus mm-hmm. the influencer today, like what you've seen interviewing these, these women. Yeah, like I, so I wrote a novel basically about an influencer before the word influencer was a part of the lexicon, at least for me. And I have, now been privileged enough to meet several (laughs) probably based on that you know I think I think I wrote this novel as almost like science fiction you know because it didn't it wasn't like trying to be predictive but it was definitely not it was leaving a lot of things blank because I didn't necessarily know where this famous for being famous thing was headed and then since that novel kind of became popular with younger people actually the magazines that I write for kind of started assigning me um interviews with with the people that kind of fit into that category that I was writing fiction about so it's been like really meta for me actually Mm -hmm. and it's been really strange and informing and and I love it so much (laughs) like learning about the kind of yeah like the new modes of advertising that are scary but also maybe like maybe I'm I'm sort of I don't know like I I'm not super aware of the the ones that are maybe the biggest because uh-huh. maybe they're not in my feed so talk about some of the the people you've interviewed like there's this woman Allie, is that her real yeah. name? Yeah, like, I mean, that's, like, a girl that lives down the street from me. Like, she's great. And she, you know, I, like, kind of knew of her as just someone that was around but didn't, maybe didn't know that she had, like, this huge following. And then when I got assigned um, an interview with her, I learned more about what that meant to her and this idea of becoming so, like, far-reaching so fast. Like, I don't want to say famous because it's kind of such a vague word now, but so kind of available to a wide audience in such a short amount of time and such in such an unprecedented way because it was right when Instagram, like, started maybe. And that's the case with a lot of these people. And I think it's really hard for them to navigate those emotions, especially if they didn't aspire to fame or even like art practices but then have to kind of validate whatever they're doing because there's always backlash and so they have to call it art or they have to call it business or you know entrepreneurship or content creation all these things and it's like most of it's just kind of based on like a a maybe second nature like an impulse to show off that you're beautiful. And, and I think that's always been around. You know, it's like we've always known people that are beautiful and that that 
you know, take advantage of that fact. But then I think once it becomes like out of your hands, like how much you've taken advantage of that fact, it gets unwieldy and it gets really just complicated and confusing for these girls. Mm-hmm. And they're just such interesting people because of that. Mm-hmm. And they're so young. I mean, yeah. a lot of them, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, some of them, some of them have grown up. Right. And, you know, like I just met Tavi Gevinson and she's like, feels more grown up than I am. She's like 10 years younger than me or something. But she's learned so much from that experience that and kind of written about it in a way that no one else can but also in such a surprisingly clear-sighted way mm. for someone who went through it and is still going through it. But it also seems, in her case, a little different because, you know, she was blogging and, you know, writing. She started a right. magazine and now she's an actress. Like, that from maybe the more amorphous online world that she's actually, you know, created these vocations for herself. Right. For her to do real work. Mm-hmm. Um in that and that that we don't understand like taking a cool picture of yourself you know and posting it online and and just have inviting you know comments or whatever as as like a true profession yet even though it it is at this point right you know, it doesn't it, does, it also seems like pretty precarious yeah i mean yeah with her in her case and in a lot of cases there's a lot more like intentionality that can be seen there and you can like Tabby is a writer and kind of always was. You right. could tell that she had a intelligent mind even when she was a preteen and that that was what she was banking on. But I think at some point, the imbalance between what is being expected, what is expected of you and what is being paid for and what is not being paid for and what is kind of branded as authentically you that isn't necessarily something you would do without the money incentive becomes a really like dangerous drug Mm -hmm. like it's just it makes you feel really like you have many selves and you can't put them all together in one place Mm -hmm. so I think she's done a great job of eventually discovering that and like then reflecting on it but I think a lot of people don't have that capacity, right. you know, for whatever reason. You you know, a, a word that comes up so much in this collection is dysmorphia. Uh-huh. Or like people are dysmorphic. Um, do you think that's related? I mean, obviously it's related to looking at Instagram and, and, and social media. But like, how is this coming up for you so much with among your, among your peer group? Um, among my peer group, it's it's really prevalent i've i think i've known a lot of people that are affected by their like comparing their online presence to their daily life and so it's more that they want to look like themselves online as opposed to they want to look like a celebrity online um i don't know i think it's well like this there's like a new phenomenon that i was reading about i guess maybe it's not that new i don't know but i it's some something like Instagram filter dysmorphia or I forget what they called it. But it it's this idea that um, a lot of people are going into a um, plastic surgeon and asking to get their face transformed into the face that they see in their Instagram filters. 
which actually isn't really possible because the eyes getting enlarged are usually what makes you more attractive on those filters, I think. <laughs> like, it makes you look younger. So, um, so that's a pretty... Um, maybe it's, like, super dangerous <laughs> that that's what people are asking for. Um, yeah. So they, want to, so they want to look more like the online versions of themselves. Yeah. yeah. Because that's so... Um, it's so, so controlled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think there's, yeah, there's just like a lot of ideas of dysmorphia that are not even necessarily um, that like body dysmorphia or that you think of, you think of yourself as looking a certain way when you are not viewed that way. Like that's kind of the classic um, definition, but there's just so many sort of I think kind of, um, I don't know, more like optimistic views of that too, where you find a new version of yourself through your online interactions that you would have never found in your, um, like in your physical world, whether it's because you live in a like small town or like some kind of limited environment or just because you kind of feel freer in this more limitless fantastical place you know there's so many examples of people who are discovering that they identify as trans through like an online forum you know Hmm. and kind of having um maybe like a history of finding themselves through video games or some like interface that is putting like your self into another self kind of another body um so I think that's like like I think the word dysmorphia can have can get only it usually has a negative connotation right but it can also be about discovering another aspect of yourself right right I think in the last I think it's in the last piece in this collection which I feel like it's a piece of fiction. Naming naming names? Is oh, that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. It, sort of. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly based on a real um, encounter of, you know, there's someone who goes to this really elaborate launch party and it's like supposedly feminist and there's pink this and pink that, but it just sounds like just lots of bad feelings and <laughs> of, of, of just a really shiny, empty, hollow terrible thing that would make you feel bad but there was a line in there that's something like and it was about social media and representing yourself and it was there was something to the effect of like i know i hate this but i'm so good at it i can't stop mm-hmm. i don't know if you know what i'm talking about yeah i think so I, I mean just the the feeling of like would i exist if i stopped you right. know it's like i'm it's not necessarily that i think these people or me or you know whoever's speaking in that story is are worried about how good they are at something it's just that they're worried about being disconnected and and feeling like if even if they're projecting their feelings of anxiety at least they're projecting they're like participating in a conversation and otherwise they would just be forgotten Mm -hmm. so is so is that something that you I mean it's and I think then as a writer as well there's this another level of anxiety to mm-hmm. add to that to that mix. So how do you um, how has that affected you know your 
your writing life? Um, I don't know. Well, yeah, like I, I think it's been really funny talking about this book because it is like, I guess, more focused on like social media and sort of the newer behaviors of like promoting yourself. But in my mind, so much of it is about writing too. Mm -hmm. Like the literary scene in New York that I'm like, also feel peripheral to in the same way as like the fashion world. I'm like, am I part of this? You know, and there's, I think, yeah, like part of me is like, I have to choose a direction in order to be completely in one of those tracks. Mm -hmm. And that goes for like being accepted into a group of people, but also it means I feel sort of like one of my insecurities about writing is that I'm too kind of everywhere. Like I do cultural criticism if that's what you want to call it, but I also do like auto fiction if that's what you want to call it or I write novels and I interview people and I'm like, yes, everything, I'll do it. You know, I need to make money and I also am interested in so many things and so many ways of writing um, including writing ad copy. Like, I think it's fascinating. And I think writing, like, press releases and Instagram captions and all those things are still, like, studying tone of voice. And mm-hmm. and they've informed the rest of my work in so many ways that, I don't know, it's like, yeah, it's like a constant sort of conversation going on in my head. It's like I either feel anxious about all of that meaning that I'm not like a real writer or or that I've sold out in some way or I'm justifying it and saying like you know at least I can speak for the writers that need the money and like have to do this stuff and I have met a lot of writers who are like thank you for actually admitting that you do this yeah you know oh yeah because it's so sort of looked down on to say like I write press copy and that's how I make my money to fund my more creative endeavors. I think most of the people in my position, which there are a lot of, say, you know, I write, I, I have a lot of bylines mm-hmm. in a lot of magazines. And I know that that's not right. sustainable. Right. Yeah, they wouldn't mention it so openly. Uh, but, it, but it also gives you this inside, I mean, that you... That it gives you. I mean, I wanted to talk about ambivalence in the co- in the mm-hmm. collection, um, because you don't, as much as you work for all these different places, you 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 don't hide your ambivalence about kind of what you're promoting or what you're working on, and and you do have this inside track into, like how advertising works or how you know, influencing works in a, in a way that maybe someone else who's just observing it doesn't have, um, and, and it also kind of filters into other essays in the collection like you write about me too mm-hmm. for instance um at the, about that time where like in the new york times every day there was a um profile of a different man who had committed these heinous acts um and i wanted to ask you about just writing from a place of ambivalence mm-hmm. um how that is maybe productive for you um if you can pinpoint that in your own writing um never being quite like an enthusiast or <laughs> yeah. or a straight out critic either but but having a little bit of a in between spot i think it's always been 
kind of my style. And I, I, I feel like sometimes it's a defense mechanism and sometimes it's this sort of intentional, like semi-sarcastic tone just so I can write from a place that isn't sort of this confessional first person narrative that so many people find grating, like including myself. A, a lot of times when I read like a personal account of something, it just feels like it's not aware of how that person's experience or like their personal life has affected their view of the situation in so many ways. I don't, I don't feel like that doesn't make sense, but. No, I, I see what you're saying. What well, can be kind of insular and, and it doesn't take into account like other people's experience as, as they're as they're reading it you know it's like yeah. it's too, it might have too strong a point of view right to be able to relate to well, it was like when you're arguing with a friend or you know somebody you know closely like that's the way you talk you say like well me I've had this much trauma and I've dealt with these things and that's why I'm behaving this way but when you're writing I feel like there needs to be some other layer to it or else I don't I find it to be grating myself. Mm -hmm. So, I, mm -hmm. you know, it's like there's nothing inherently wrong with that style. But for me, I'm interested in sort of a more, I don't know, like a, a writing style that has a, like more going on mm -hmm. and has sort of these different tones that you can also read into, like kind of picture the character instead of just trying to take in the story for you know, somebody's like earnest expression or like authentic self, you know, because I've, I also feel like because of my subject matter, I can't really get too deep in like what, you know, authentically someone is mm -hmm. since that's always being questioned, mm -hmm. you know. That's interesting. Uh, would you say, do you feel like you have um, progenitors who you look to to help you kind of like find that tone? Yeah, I think... Well, it's hard to say whether any of these people actually <laughs> feel this way about their own writing, but I think there's like a level of, it's like a sardonic kind of voice that I'm looking to. And there's, you know, there's Cookie Mueller, there's Eve Babbitts, Jean Reese, Mary McCarthy, like they're all women, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, they're not all women. I mean, um, Dennis Johnson. I I think my favorite writers have this remove when they're writing about something that I guess you're used to hearing from this more like desperate voice of like trying to relate to you that this tragedy occurred and all of these writers kind of have a coolness about them that I just appreciate yeah that's cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, I think we're, we'll end there. Thank okay. you so much, Natasha, for being here. Thank you. We've been speaking with Natasha Stagg. Her new collection is Sleeveless, Fashion, Image, Media, New York, 2011 through 2019. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. 
Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 